So this is a secret Greek ritual known as the Eleusinian Mysteries, or the Rites of Eleusis. Sorry, can I just yeah, get a toilet? as well, actually. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> just trying to think of a good time to jump in. Right, give me. I won't be long. So we are ready. Yeah. Are you sitting comfortably? Just about. I am. So let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Co-Conspirators podcast. I'm your host, Callum, and joining me in yet another unchanged lineup are my co-hosts, John. Hi, everyone. And Luke. Hi, guys. As 25 episodes could be considered a bit of a milestone, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners across the world for tuning in and being part of this. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as YouTube, and a host of other podcasting platforms. So please like, comment, subscribe, leave us a review wherever you listen. We love reading your feedback and recommendations. Also, try and spread the word with your friends. There's plenty more to come from us three. And if you know anyone who needs a new podcast to listen to and loves their mysteries and conspiracies, you know where to find us. Now, on with the podcast. So on the Co-Conspirators podcast, we've discussed a host of conspiracies, from classics like 9-11 and the moon landings, to more novel theories like the coronavirus and Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, the novel coronavirus. Yeah, (laughs) that was my thinking. (laughs) Although the man who's been hanging around, I don't think novel can describe it anymore. It's more we're bloody sick of this coronavirus. (laughs) More recently, we've been on a bit of a journey through the history books, which has seen us investigating some of the myths and legends our ancient ancestors created. Last week, we visited ancient Egypt. So if you want to hear some of the mysteries surrounding the pyramids and the Sphinx, as well as the secret cocaine habits of the pharaohs, check it out. This episode, we're taking a voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, which will see us swap the Pyramids of the Sphinx for philosophy in Spartans, one of the most sophisticated and forward-thinking periods in ancient history. This Hellenistic period started with the Greek Dark Ages from around 10,000 BC and culminated in 600 AD following conquest by the Roman Republic. This period saw great advancements in almost all walks of life, from science and technology, art and architecture, and religion, as well as the aforementioned philosophy and warfare. Many famous leaders still hold cultural and historical significance today, such as Pythagoras, Socrates, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great, to name but a few. Did you know that, um, so I saw this earlier, Pythagoras and Buddha were alive at the same time? I did not know that. Given how we were found out on our last episode that our ancestors were doing a lot more transatlantic and across the ocean trade, you know, I just reckon they met? <laughs> well, you say that, but Pythagoras had a cult and a huge following, and they were very spiritual as well. So yeah, maybe he did get that from Buddha or pass it on to Buddha. <laughs> so maybe he uh, told Buddha about the numbers and Buddha told him about the um, whole spirit stuff. A meeting of the minds, mm. truly. I wonder who would have gained the most, because I'm not sure Buddha had much to be doing with working out the length of the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle. You never know. And also, Confucius was alive at the same time, and he was very philosophical as well. So maybe um, Pythagoras spoke to him as well, because, I mean, after them, after the Romans, I don't really know what happened for the next, like, until today, really, until the 1940s, what actually happened in history. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) You say that, I did see a theory recently, but we almost went effectively backwards during what is known as the Dark Ages, especially in Europe where there was not very much advancement going on whatsoever. Yeah, you've just got the Greeks and the Romans and then World War One, really. I, I guess you got a small section of Scandinavia doing a bit here and there, but yeah, I don't really know anything else now. Isn't there a conspiracy that around that time they accidentally or whatever skipped forward the calendars? So there's actually like a, I think it's like a 500 year period that they think actually didn't happen. So we're actually 500 years further back, which may account for some of that. Just imagine waking up one morning, you're like, wait, wasn't it like AD 226 yesterday? It's AD 700. <laughs> How long have I been asleep? <laughs> <laughs>
you go to history school or your teacher's telling you off writing the date 500 years <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Maybe somebody's have, have to dig into it in the future. It does sound quite compelling given that it isn't called the Dark Ages and there doesn't even be much advancement at all. I mean, suppose over here we had, what's it? Well, I can think of really is the Battle of Hastings and a few other battles here and there. Yeah, that's true. I think it would be interesting to kind of look into in the future. I mean, as you can probably tell, I don't know very much about it other than I'm sure there was a large period of history that isn't really documented. <laughs> Possibly one for the future. <laughs> Go back to the future. <laughs> or maybe the boring answer is just nothing happened. There's nothing worth writing down. Yeah, well, it's like that day. There was a day in like 19, I don't know, 30 or something where the news just reported hello everyone today nothing's been there is no news <laughs> that was it <laughs> maybe it was 500 years of that <laughs> are you sure that well that's particular news it wasn't the day after the office party people <laughs> to send out any journalists they want hangovers <laughs> possibly but after that little bit of a tangent i'll try and steer the ship back to the ancient greeks Ancient Greece has been credited for the first advancements toward modern democracy, and their influence did not wane with the Roman invasion. In fact, Roman culture was heavily inspired by the ancient Greeks, who helped spread their ideas across the Mediterranean and wider Europe. So, were these philosophers and scientists as great as the history books proclaim? Over to Luke to dig a bit deeper. Yeah, thanks for that, Callum. So, uh, in my kind of conspiracy theory, more of a mystery, really, I'm going to be talking about Homer. So, Homer was the presumed author of the famous poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which I'm guessing you've both heard of. I have indeed. Yeah. Um, and, they're, you know, they're two very, very famous poems, arguably two of the most famous poems of all time, and they're foundational works of both ancient Greek and ancient Roman literature, but extensions of that there. Also, foundations of Western civilization as a whole. And something that I didn't know is that, you know, people don't know who Homer is. There's actually no one credited as Homer. And I don't know if you guys knew that and if that's common knowledge or not. But yeah, I thought he was married to Marg. <laughs> Big fan of beer as well, I heard. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, fair play if The Simpsons pulled that one off. They've been credited with like predicting a lot of events. But if they've written the Iliad and the Odyssey like 3,000 years ago, <laughs> fair play to them. But yeah, no one actually knows who Homer is. His legend has been passed down generations and he was worshipped by both the ancient Greeks and Romans and his legacy is long-lasting in many cultures and literature. And there's obviously kind of a bust of him in the Louvre in Paris. Um, but, you know, that's just a guess of what the person looked like based on stories um, that have been passed down. There's many stories of his origin. Many believe he was born in modern-day Turkey, whilst others say mainland Greece. I mean, I think if you're Turkish, you say Turkey. If you're Greek, you say Greece, of course. You say Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows where Springfield is either, so maybe there is. It's just, it was intentionally like that. Yeah. Wasn't the film or something they didn't show? where it was supposed to be on the sat nav yeah they had a sat nav didn't they yeah maybe matt groening is a you know a pythagorean cult member <laughs> and yes lots He's of o's to homer in his work <laughs> but yeah over seven places claim homer as their own um and there was actually an 18th century obsession with placing homer and the debate was reignited with some scholars suggesting it was a woman some saying it was a group of people and some even saying it was a story passed down and edited along generational lines like imagine that you know the two greatest poems of all times being affected by Chinese whispers they're like oh crap do you remember what the third line in the Iliad was and they're just like oh crap now just write something about horses or something that was... <laughs> but yeah there were also doubts as to when the poems were actually composed a lot of people agree on 800 BC but Many suggest the Iliad could have been written in about 2000 BC. Like John said about the ancient Sphinx on the ancient Egyptian episode, you know, it could have been written way before people actually believe, you know, a whole thousand years prior to when many date it. And there's actually large elements of the Homer stories 
uh, particularly the Iliad that are shared among the Indo-European world as a whole. So all the way from North India through Greece uh, to Germanic and Icelandic stories. So essentially what you've got here is you've got loads of poems, ancient poems that share very similar characteristics to the work of Homer. So people are suggesting, you know, that the poem has been passed across lines and cultures and you know, the Iliad in one respect is the Iliad in Greece, but the Iliad in other countries is, has been passed down in Chinese whispers into a completely different poem. So who knows, maybe the collective culture of Homer's who passed this down also wrote classic poems like Beowulf or I Would Walk 500 Miles by the Proclaimers. <laughs> so the situation in the poem, the Iliad, is um, actually very clearly not one in which two deeply civilized nations are opposed to each other, which you'd expect in 800 BC when people believe it was written. Uh, the civilized nation in the Iliad is Troy. And, you know, it's a well-set-up, organized city where women lead very dignified lives. And outside of Troy in the poem is this camp of wild barbarians, the Greeks. And, you know, picture that could be painted in 1,600 like, BC to 2,000 BC, so a thousand years before many people are dating it. And yeah, so the Iliad survived for hundreds, if not thousands of years as a spoken poem and was eventually written down. And that's believed to have happened in 800 BC, which uh, when many people date it to, but no manuscripts actually survive from that time. So although people are saying it was written down in 800 BC after years of being spoken, there's actually no kind of record of that. I suppose, who, who's the person right, we've got to write this down now. It's actually a pretty good story 800 years later. They finally realised <laughs> that this is good enough to be written down. I mean, I guess it's just one of them tales like it's not as commonplace now but you know around the campfire little bit of a campfire story someone's telling you it's good and you think actually you know what I'm, i could put this down as a book and, <laughs> and sell it <laughs> christopher columbus all over again <laughs> yeah. but funnily enough the uh, earliest scripts that survive were actually found rolled up under the heads none other than mummified greek egyptians in the egyptian deserts from 100 bc so, you know, they were doing coke, but they were also maybe sniffing coke through paper scrolls of the Iliad. <laughs> um, but yeah, the scripts that were found were fragments and not the whole Iliad. But yeah, as I said, this was in 200 BC, which is 500 years after the first manuscript was believed to have been written. So even in this time, it could have been passed down and changed a lot as well. So it could just be completely different to the original story. The oldest complete Iliad was found in Doge's library in Venice. And that's something I found out about. Um, I don't know if you guys knew, but... There's a thing called the Doge of Venice, and it's spelled the exact same way as the uh, Doge <laughs> that we all know and love today. I was going to say that they also happen to have a cryptocurrency. Well, as maybe a they do. So funny enough, as I mentioned, this fragment was found in Doge's library in Venice, but it wasn't actually found until the end of the 18th century. So, you know, only 100 years ago, we're finding the first fully scripted piece of the Iliad. So it's this weirdly super famous poem that, you know, the Greeks and the Romans both worship, but we don't actually find a copy of it until like the late 18th century, which which is crazy, really, because I, I believe like poems such as Beowulf exist. Well, they were written down and passed down and there's many copies of it. Yeah, it's a very mysterious poem in this sense. I suppose you've got, also got the instances of, we mentioned other podcasts, of writings of ancient cultures being found and possibly being disproven or being proven false. It was definitely verified as a genuine writing from ancient Greece. Well, this is the thing. No, it wasn't. It had come to Venice from uh, Constantinople, Byzantium, so kind of Byzantium Empire Roman time. 
and it is believed to be made in AD 900, which, you know, a thousand years after it was first written down and 2000 years after it was first spoken. So, you know, the Romans made this copy. It could be completely different to the copy the Greeks made. And we, we could just have this famous Greek poem that's just completely edited by the Romans in a way. Basically, Roman propaganda now. have got their hands on it. They've twisted the facts. So they paint yeah. them in a good light and paint the Greeks as the barbarians. Well, exactly that. Yeah, the Greeks were painted as the barbarians in the poem. Poems. And, you know, for a poem that's such a big part of Greece and Greek culture, you know, you, it's kind of surprising that the Greeks were painted as barbarians in the poem. So maybe there is some accuracy to that. But the thing I find a bit strange is um, it had been dated to coming to Venice in AD 900. And it wasn't actually found in Doge's library until the late 18th century, which which is crazy. It took 900 years to find this beloved poem in a library. You know, it's not quite got the Dewey library system or whatever we have in <laughs> libraries today. But That's what I was saying. Aren't libraries supposed to make it easy to find the book you want to um, borrow? Imagine. Yeah, I'll just borrow a copy of the Iliad, please. The original one, not a reprint. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't know how that's happened. It's such a sought-after piece of work, and it's just sitting there for 900 years. Like, I can imagine like being in... I'm pretty sure, you know, there's a University of Bologna or something in Italy that dates to like 1200 or whatever. Imagine trying to go to the library to do your homework and you're having to search 900 <laughs> years for a book. <laughs> Wouldn't want to imagine student loans after 900 years of studying. Yeah, as well as this, this um, copy in the Doge's library had kind of editorial notes. Um, so people studied it. So it was a poem that had been studied and, you know, notes were written down, much like, you know, we, we have an English homework, we'll read a book and write notes in it. Again, kind of just proves that it's edited, really. Are you sure there wasn't just massive spoilers in it, like um, we'd, um, the classic one for of Mice and Men, George and Lenny, yeah. written at the front of every single book. <laughs> Just loaned out when you study it. Yeah, imagine. Like, I don't actually know like much about the Iliad, but I know it's written well, meant to be written during the Trojan Wars. So I, I don't know if it talks about like the Battle of Troy and stuff. But just imagine the first page, and yeah, the Greeks were hiding in a wooden horse. And... <laughs> well, what a spoiler that would be! It's supposed uh, to be the best, the best part. <laughs> but furthering on to the belief that Homer was more than one person, other many believe that the Iliad and the Odyssey were written by completely different people, much like supposedly Homer's works were passed down the lines of many the story of his slash hers slash their which is a very fitting in 2021 i may say yeah very yeah, their, um, their origin was also passed down the line and the origin of homer has been edited by many uh the resurgence of interest in homer's work in the 18th century and who he or she or whatever was um did little to uncover any of the mystery all it really did was uh, leave a few german scholars squabbling as you know the germans were very interested in homer's work for some reason uh, maybe just because it's about violence and <laughs> the Germans were fans of that. The social and military tactics. Yeah. But yeah, Homer's uh, violent poems cause violence. And I'm sure Homer, whoever it was, would be very proud of that. It's, it's an old one because, you know, you've got these ancient Greeks, they're very philosophical. And, you know, and then you've got the Romans who are a bit more gung-ho and violent. And the poems of the greatest Greek poet of all time just ended up being very, very violent. So again, there could be a case of him being edited there in some way, shape or form to, to suit the Romans who also worshipped him. But yeah, we've all been told tales by our grandparents, which we can pass further down our hereditary lines. I'm not sure, though, that any will have the same influence that one blind Turkish bloke story did back in uh, ancient Greece. So yeah, what do you think? Is uh, Homer likely to be a collective, a, a spoken story passed down the lines and edited? Or, or do you think it's actually just one individual talented 
I mean, you can have one brilliant hit out of nowhere, but two. I mean, lightning striking twice, writing two of the greatest poems ever to have or seen the face of literature. I think that's a bit of a bridge too far for me, if I do say so. Just imagine it in like 2,000 years. Everyone's like reading Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and they're just like, yeah, just put that down as one guy. Yeah, that would be such an insult. (laughs) You've got written the greatest poem of all time and you just lambasted into this name. Oh, no. Also, it would be a very interesting turn of the history books if it was, say, a woman who was part of this consortium of people who thought wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey because I don't think Greeks have viewed women particularly highly in the hierarchy of their um, societies. Well, yeah, but funny enough, in um, the Iliad, they were viewed as quite highly and that's um, kind of suggestive of life in that area before kind of Greek civilization properly started. So that kind of leads into the fact that it was a spoken poem from like 2000 BC rather than 800 BC, I guess. So Homer, the collective, was actually just a feminist yeah. Writing group could have been ho with an e on the end. <laughs> Maybe the Romans decided that you know to stop it being too bad that they edited it, they'd leave in the whole feminist side because. I'm pretty sure they weren't fans of women either. I don't think many of our ancient civilizations were. It took a, took a while for them to establish their rights. I mean, yeah, establish their rights and around the same time that Homer's uh, thing was found in Doge's library. So. Well, there you go then. More fuel for this conspiracy. When I did my research this episode, I saw this theory mentioned several times that Homer wasn't actually, or it's almost impossible to definitively state there was one person called Homer who wrote both of these poems. And it's just one of the things about history, especially when you're going back that far, how hard it is to find concrete evidence of something that was to happen because of the Chinese whispers way that stories were passed down, things getting changed, and the fact that it might not have been written down but centuries after it was originally the idea of the story was conceived. So it's just such a grey area for trying to establish hard facts on who was the author for this. That's so something now in modern times we've gotten quite good at. Well, yeah, you say that, but people still use kind of aliases to this day. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. I'm going to go going for a rate. I'm going to give it a solid 8.5 out of 10. I think it's really interesting. I did one of my first encounters with Greek history. I've got very vivid memories of a book, a cartoon version of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I was enthralled as that, maybe as a five-year-old. I thought it was a very riveting tale. <laughs> I don't think you was target demographic, <laughs> if I'm honest. No, but easy early reading Greek or something, or just... How highbrow were you? <laughs> I was thinking, like, I was ahead of my time as a gifted child or anything like that. It was all pictures mainly, those texts and stuff, a very detailed telling of... It was just Hercules was in there, the trials of Hercules, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Jason the Argonauts, all these different myths and legends. Your parents and Waterstones going, should we get the rest of the Hungry Caterpillar? No, get him the Iliad. <laughs> He'll thank us for it. Yeah. Well, here I am now talking about it on a conspiracy theories podcast. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Until the age of like 20, you mentioned Homer. Well, even now, I just still instantly think of Homer Simpson rather than the Greek yes. legends. So. He must be, tur- if he exists, he must be turning in his grave thinking that a yellow buffoon is stealing his credit for his name when he wrote two of the most influential poems. But that's the question. Was he actually a real person? I guess that brings me on to the believability side. And I'm married to the fact that just because it was so long ago, it's been incredibly difficult to pinpoint these stories to one person. And the way the nature of how 
I would say media, that's a very loose term for it, the nature of entertainment back then, no one could really take ownership of anything because stories would spread through campfires, trading places, various um, markets, etc. Stories to be exchanged. It was like goods and services, way just for something to entertain people in their lulls between fighting and dying. Especially tales as epic as that. You love to be sitting around a campfire with your mates and someone says, oh, all right, oh, here goes Homer again, if it really was Homer, <laughs> off the Boris the death with the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that it's also Chinese whispers to almost craft the story to a final set of prose that then was finally written down hundreds of years after seems like quite a compelling idea. You know, ironing out the mistakes, almost like a centuries-long editorial process to trim down the fat and get the real meat and meat of the story. So Meat and two veg. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so meat, meat and two veg of the story. <laughs> So after that um, penetrating discussion, I'm not, I'm not talking about the Greeks' uh, attack of on Troy. I was very unsuspect, and I did not see that coming. I think this is quite this is quite the opposite. I think it's quite easy to see that yes, there might have been a guy called Homer in ancient Greece. That that part I'm not debating, but to have just one person have written these stories, be fully credited with them, I think is is too far reaching for me. So I'm going to say the believability that Homer was not just one person. I'm going to give it a six out of ten. I think as well, you know, the fact that he's started off as a spoken story and that a lot of the world in what when it was written or spoken sorry in 2000 bc was illiterate and couldn't read or write you know you've got two of the greatest poems of all time and arguably the guy who came up with them or the person who came up with them couldn't write this is just crazy he was blind. uh well that's one of the stories yeah many people believe he's blind and i think one of the famous busts of homer i don't think the one in the louvre but one of the most famous ones does have him as a, a blind man didn't even tweak that until now. So yeah, further ads. He definitely couldn't have written it down. You can see what he was writing. <laughs> or he tried. <laughs> no one yeah, Which is unintelligible, right? <laughs> Going as scholars or his other philosopher mates. Yes, Homer, that's very good right now. Come on, Socrates, what you got to offer? He was just handing out <laughs> scripts being put straight on the fire. <laughs> like, in my opinion. Feel free, the floor is yours. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this theory as well. I think, you know, Homer's so famous, put on such a pedestal that if you to suddenly say actually he may not have written them at all he may have been blind as we've just touched on i think it's a great theory so for me eight and a half out of ten as well but believability i mean he, he's not the only sort of poet or famous writer that these similar rumors haven't been spread about if if anyone's seen uh st trinian's too the legend of fritton's gold you'll remember very well that shock ending when they find out william shakespeare oh, you, spoiled, <laughs> you spoiled a miser man you spoiled the iliad and now you're spoiling st trinian's too come on Three great literary works. I mean, if you've not seen that by now, you don't deserve to watch the film. <laughs> I'm sure our resident film expert, Gio, would have a thing to say about that. <laughs> but yeah, and, and obviously the rumours about Shakespeare aren't just sort of consigned to that film. There, It's quite common that people think Shakespeare might have been more than one person or, or actually have been a woman. So I think for the same sort of conspiracy and theories to be extended to Homer, especially with all that evidence, I think when you say there were spoken poems, they're always going to get lost in translation somewhat. So I really don't think it's that far-fetched at all um, that he didn't, you know, exactly write them both down. So believability-wise, might go for a six and a half out of ten. 
can you really take credit for if you speak something out loud? Like, I could say, right, say a story. Oh, Callum went to the shops, bought a loaf of bread, and then went home, tripped over, went to the hospital. <laughs> that, that could go down as a literary classic 5,000 years on from now. How is anyone going to verify that it was me that just told my life story? Well, they can't, but, you know, they try and build statues out of you, and someone might say that you're blind because, you know, you did, you did fall over. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, certainly found this one interesting. You know, it's always cool to look at mysteries and it was educational as well it's something that i didn't really know much about you know yes yeah, oh so you, you yeah I... <laughs> sorry <laughs> so yeah i was gonna say i was gonna bring up a topic here it's a massive tangent but you know there's like those quiz questions where it's like which pop artist and you're like oh andy warhol and it's like yeah, it's like andy which australian warhol, actor yeah. and you're like jason donovan and it's like which greek poet and you're like homer now <laughs> now when the question comes up which greek poet i'm gonna have to say a collective of people <laughs> but yeah it's it was interesting i'm gonna score it a, a 7.5 out of 10 in, in terms of believability you know i think it's almost definite that well n- not not definite it was a collective but definitely the original iliad has changed a lot you know just naturally through being spoken it's going to get lost things are going to be mixed up a bit you know if it was still ongoing today and i was alive and the iliad got passed on to me you know i'd probably just make something up just for a bit of fun take some credit for writing it but um yeah whether or not the romans then did their thing with it as well and completely changed it is it's certainly interesting um but yeah i'm gonna score it an eight out of ten for the fact that it was a collective of people yeah that's um it for the theories of homer um i think that's it for these simpsons theories as well unless you've got any on marge for us color well you're never going to be able to mention homer and to say so without making jokes about the simpsons so i think we did well to limit it where we could all tastefully done have you seen the simpsons episode homer's on i might have done no, I'm not, that's very appropriate for this I'd episode. To, yeah, I'd have to look, to look it up, but I've probably seen it. One of the greatest names for a... Is it one of the program. old ones? Yeah, yeah it's a really old one. It's like the first I'll be an incredibly missed open goal if they never did something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's the third episode. I can't they blend it a load too early then, in that case. <laughs> I've got the first series on DVDs. So square, oh, square TV back then? Uh, yeah, I think so. I had this tiny little square <laughs> silver one, so I used to watch it on that. We had a DVD, a DVD player, player so a square TV. I had a DVD player on my square exactly. TV as well, and it was a tiny one. <laughs> I, I hooked it up to my PS3 and used to play Modern Warfare on it as well. It's on a 10-inch screen. We are spoiled by the size of TVs nowadays, I'm telling you. Oh, legit, yeah. I don't know how you used to play split screen on tiny little ones. God. <laughs> All right, another tangent. Oh, sorry, okay. But now we'll move on to my theory, which maybe you could argue that Homer could have been a part of this theory that I'm about to discuss. Talking about almost a secret high society of ancient Greeks that all the philosophers seem to have graduated from and gave them their inspiration to produce great works of uh, philosophy and art. So this is a secret Greek ritual known as the Eleusian Mysteries, or the Rites of Eleusis. As the initiated were sworn to secrecy on pain of death, the precise details of the ritual have never been revealed. However, testaments from many renowned inductees suggest that members of the secret society were subjected to a powerful ritual, changing their outlook on life and liberating them from their fear of death. There are also many relics that depict various stages of the mysteries, with the name thought to be derived from the Greek myth of Elysium, or the Elysian Fields. The Elysian Fields are basically a conception of the afterlife, believed by Greek religious and philosophical sects and cults. So essentially, it's like heaven, for want of a better term, where also all the good and righteous go and live a blessed life with everything waiting on beck and call for everything their heart desires. 
I saw something on Twitter this week, again, off tangent, but someone said, if you can't escape he- from heaven, if you can't leave heaven once you're there, isn't it technically a prison? Would you want to leave, I guess? Depends what's there, isn't it? Well, I suppose as long as there's PS5. <laughs> <laughs> They're not out of, they're not in, in heaven, they're only out of stock for a month. Here it's four months. PS5 with Dogecoin hits one day. <laughs> right, so back to the mysteries then. So what do we know about these mysteries and which famous ancient Greeks are thought to have been involved and why? So the central theme around this ritual design was the Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone, which offered a vision of eternal life and triumph over death. So in short, a little bit of a myth for you, which interestingly enough, when Greeks refer to myths, or what the Greeks called myths, were actually truths, but what we call myths were stories and legends. But in this case, it's a myth because it's talking about gods. It's obviously not true. So the Greeks it, thought the myths were true, is what you said? Essentially, yeah, because obviously they believed in the gods. Yeah. So Demeter, the Greek goddess of nature, had a daughter named Persephone, who was kidnapped by Hades, god of the underworld. Demeter searched relentlessly to no avail, but eventually, in a play to force Zeus to intervene, so Zeus being king of the gods, big man in charge, Demeter, being the goddess of nature, caused a terrible drought. This led to much suffering death amongst the Greek people, and most importantly, deprived the gods of worship and sacrifice. Clearly angered by the attention deprivation, Zeus relented and forced his brother Hades to release Persephone. However, before she was released, Hades tricked Persephone into eating pomegranate seeds, as Mythos decreed that anyone who consumed food in the underworld was doomed to spend eternity there. Is that why pomegranates are called like the devil's fruit? That is a very interesting point. You can imagine I hadn't really considered that at all, the etymology of pomegranate. But it could well be linked no, to this myth. Surely it is, yeah. Right, so in Christianity it's an apple, and in Greek mythology it's a pomegranate. I know it's religion I prefer yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hades could um, perceive as a devil because he only gave us six seeds, which is a measly portion. Oh. <laughs> but for each of those seeds, Persephone was forced to spend a month of the year in the underworld with Hades. Basically, it was sort of a compromise, either doomed to spend eternity there or do half and half. Like uh, Jeffrey Epstein doing half a week in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was more than that. It was one day, <laughs> one day for a five-hour shift and he's doing, <laughs> does what he wants, back to his island. Wouldn't he have time to unpack his stuff? He's already like, I'm back off out the door, see you, lads. <laughs> yeah, they want to believe he had all the time required to set up his elaborate hanging off a six-foot bed. But, mm. So if you want to hear more about that, check out our Jeffrey Epstein episode. I did see recently that Glenn Maxwell was in the news again, but I can't remember what it was about. Uh, was someone doing a documentary on her or something like that? Has she I don't think she has, and it seems like she's been really pushed under the rug. Mm. She is in prison, right? She's under yeah, absolute yeah. protection, but remember, by that I mean the guards will be doing online shopping, <laughs> doctoring the CCTV. Yet another tangent on this episode of Tangents, <laughs> which could be quite relevant, given we might be mentioned Pythagoras at some point. Exactly. So there you go, it always comes full circle. A full triangle. <laughs> <laughs> so, my quick, um, just to recap, Persephone's daughter of Demeter, goddess of nature, kidnapped by Hades, tricked and was forced to spend six months of every year in the underworld. Did you read this when you were five? This one I didn't, no. This was, <laughs> this was an entirely new experience, learning this theory, or this theory is myth. I'm gutted Demeter didn't name her daughter. Which is one of 100. <laughs> De Bruyne, De Gea, Darby. Demeter. <laughs> That's the title of this podcast. 
yeah. So, obviously, only seeing a daughter for six months of the year was very saddening to Demeter, causing her to neglect the cultivation of the earth, only caring it for the months that she spent with Persephone. Elysinian followers believe that Persephone's rebirth, essentially returning from the afterlife and underworld, is symbolic of the rebirth of all plant life, the symbol of the eternity of life that flows from the generations that spring from each other. So essentially, Persephone's disappearance and reappearance coincides with the seasons being bountiful for harvest and then not being able to grow anything when she's in the underworld. People who practice in these mysteries thought that this was part of a gateway to eternal life. So pretty compelling stuff, right, if that myth made much sense to anyone. The Greeks certainly thought so, dedicating a period of ritual and celebration to the story and producing these Eleusinian mysteries. The lesser mysteries took place in the spring, and the greater mysteries followed in what would now be September, according to historical documents. Revelers walked the sacred way from Athens to Eleusis, calling out for Persephone and reenacting Demeter's search for a lost daughter. At the city of Eleusis, they would rest, as this was a place Demeter was thought to have reunited with her daughter. There they would fast before drinking a barley and mint beverage called Kaikian, the importance of which may become relevant later. I say may, it definitely will become relevant later. So if you get your thinking caps on, you might wonder where I'm going with this. I might know. After drinking Kaikian, the participants entered the Telestrian, an underground theatre where the secret ritual took place, most likely as a symbolic reenactment of the death and rebirth of Persephone, which the initiates watched and some may even have taken part in. As to what that entails, whether it was going the full sacrifice, just a bit of acting, I don't think we we'll know. But whatever happened in this theatre, those who entered would come out the next morning radically changed. Virtually every important thinker and writer in Greek antiquity, everyone who was anyone, was an initiate of these mysteries. So of these famous initiates, Plato, famous Greek philosopher, directly referenced the mysteries in his dialogue about the immortality of the soul, writing, Our mysteries had a very real meaning. He that has been purified and initiated shall dwell with the gods. And also Socrates, Plato's mentor, was another graduate of these mysteries. Another famous philosopher, Plutarch, also partook in the mysteries. And writing to his wife on the subject of his daughter's death, he wrote, Because of those sacred and faithful promises given in the mysteries, we hold it firmly for an undoubted truth that our soul is incorruptible and immoral. Let ourselves behave accordingly. He also added, when a man dies, he is like those who are initiated into the mysteries. Our whole life is a journey by torturous ways without outlet. At the moment of quitting comes terrors, shuddering fears and amazement. Then a light moves to meet you, pure meadows that receive you, songs and dances and holy apparitions. So as we mentioned earlier in the podcast about the Romans being linked with the Greeks, having basically taken over to establish their reign, Roman Emperor Cicero was also a fan of the mysteries, stating that nothing is higher than these mysteries. They have not only shown us how to live joyfully, but have taught us how to die with better hope. So were these mysteries really as life-changing as the Greeks believed? Could we ever hope to comprehend what powerful force was subjected to the soul during these rituals? Or is the truth a little closer to home? It's actually Sudoku. Well, or a crossword. (laughs) Or maybe just some Pythagoras questions. (laughs) Some believe that the priests were the ones to reveal the visions of the holy night, consisting of a fire that represented the possibility of life after death and various sacred objects. Others think this is insufficient to account for the power and longevity of the mysteries, and the experiences must have been internal and mediated by powerful psychoactive ingredients contained in the Kaikian drink. Many psychoactive agents have been proposed as a significant element of Kaikian, though without consensus or conclusive evidence. This includes the ergot, or ergo, a fungal parasite of the barley or rye grain, which contains the alkaloids ergotamine, precursor to LSD, God. and ergonovine, 
However, modern attempts to prevent a Kaikyun beverage using ergoparasitized barley have yielded inconclusive results. So not quite really um, opening a gateway to eternal life, this mint and barley drink just yet. So another proposal concerns the possible presence of dimethyltryptamine, which occurs in many wild Mediterranean plants. Fans of Joe Rogan, and by extension, fans of mind-altering substances, no doubt recognize this by a street name of DMT, a powerful psychedelic agent. Had DMT been an active ingredient in the Kaikin drink, it would, at the very least, prove yet more evidence that the ancient Greeks were the forefront of human discovery. In other words, they did DMT before Joe Rogan made it cool. <laughs> or you actually argue Joe Rogan's made it uncool now by constantly going on about it. I think peace popularity has definitely peaked and is on the decline now because he's boiled down his podcast into a number of sound bites that no matter what the guest, he always brings it back to a buddy of mine hunting elk meat, DMT and chimps. Just just like uh, <laughs> Plato, Socrates, they took his DMT and then ended up writing some of the greatest pieces of all time and Joe Rogan's taken it and just coming out and like, interviewing Elon Musk and the lads. Elon Musk actually won the time I will watch Joe Rogan. But nothing on this one, yeah. Exactly. Well, here we are talking about highbrow philosophy. Now he's going on about shooting elk. Although he's probably the real winner since he signed that massive deal with Spotify. I oh, know, $100 million. Think... Spotify for this thing will take nine. <laughs> or whatever the Happy Hour podcast made. I think we're about that same level. But I don't think uh, Spotify are going to recoup that investment. Or not for a long time, at least. I mean, you say that. I remember reading that within about two weeks, they'd already made it back because they share. Oh, well, in that case, so consider me very wrong. Okay, also, Spotify pay music artists more. That's a stand I'm going to be able to yeah. take. I'll be willing to accept 98 million if it means a little bit more in the pocket of the <laughs> artists I know that like to listen to. Yeah, split the other one. Take I'll take the one my playlist, no one else. <laughs> but yeah, in a, in a way, we can link this psychoactive agent episode back to Luke's theory on ancient Egypt, where we discovered that the mummies were big fans of cocaine. Well, the thing, the thing is, like these people would not have understood the probably wouldn't have understood the negative side effects of these drugs and you know drugs obviously do wonderful things for people's brains and make you feel good so why wouldn't all these great civilizations be doing these things especially if they don't know the negative consequences exactly that's another thing i remember reading a post about yet another tangent like how you don't see many historical records of people drinking water it was always just drinking beer and stuff no matter what they were doing water is a myth uh, we don't actually need <laughs> yeah. i can't actually go day to day with a mother of all hangovers and go and spend 12 hours working the field <laughs> I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm an absolute wreck after like three beers night after. Instead of water and uh, bread, they're just doing beer and cocaine. <laughs> Balancing out the depressive uh, aspects of the alcohol and the stimulating effects of the cocaine. Like that perfect, tread the line like perfect high. Either that or they just made a sterner stuff back then. Yeah, I was going to say not many people know, but up until 1872, the wine and bread you get in church as part of the communion was actually wine and just LSD. So. <laughs> Everyone was doing oh, it. Speaking of that, I always, I never got um, baptized or what was it? Did my communions or anything like that? But I always wanted to get the bread yeah, and, and the wine, even though the bread tasted like paper. <laughs> I never had it. I don't know what it tastes like. I, when I was younger, I had to go to church. No, I did. Bloody wee, wondering what that bread tastes like, and I've still never tried it. I might pop down to church when Christ finishes, <laughs> just so I can finally have a taste of that bread. Yes, yeah, spoiler, you're not missing much. <laughs> I can't imagine I am. 
Imagine biting into a tiddly wing. <laughs> Things I was that obsessed with finding. I learned the words that you had to say to the priest afterwards. Just to get the bread. Oh, wait. What did you have to do to the priest to get the bread? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to repeat back to him, right? Yes, I will pull down my job. <laughs> get two pieces for that. <laughs> I think it's just as blessed are you and I have to say something back and I, I can't remember what it was now but I do remember being buzzing when I got the bread then biting into it and realised okay that was a complete waste of time and the wine wasn't actually real wine I don't even know what that tasted like <laughs> the wine to take the edge off, yeah. <laughs> loosen up just super disclaimer I was not molested in church and neither any of us in this podcast I hope <laughs> I think was, I did go to a Mormon church once so got all... <laughs> yeah I did for a couple of months got all those conspiracies locked up in my locker for you personally prefer church to the Byzantium era myself mm. that was a very very niche reference that I don't think anyone would get nah <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for you to get a the Byzantine church. Come on, Angus. You know, you know you want to write one. But anyway, right, let's try and bring this back to the theories again. So as I was saying, this could tie into Luke's theories about transatlantic trade routes, which was basically he found through discovery of coked-up mummies. It might seem that humans in all stages of civilization love to get wavy, for want to a better term. But that's not where the ancient Egyptian parallels end. Some theories suggest that the psychoactive agent was actually a fungus harvested in ancient Egypt. Egypt that grew on barley, a staple ingredient in Kaikian. In fact, ancient Egypt also founded a civilization with strong beliefs in the afterlife and rebirth after death. There is evidence of trade between Greeks and ancient Egyptians, which could have led to an exchange of ideas, as well as drugs, fostering a greater understanding of the myth of Demeter and Persephone. I saw this as well, the uh, evidence of trade between the Greeks and Egyptians, and you know, it just blew my mind. It's like, you think of the Greeks and Egyptians, and you just don't think they would have ever... You just, I just didn't even picture them interacting with each other but yeah they were i suppose it's, it's only the mediterranean sea which is it's not yeah. the atlantic ocean no no it's all yeah but it still baffles to think the first intrepid explorers decided right we're going to sail north keep going till we hit land and lo and behold it's pythagoras and his mates <laughs> building triangles in the sand and they okay well, that's just an idea we'll use that take it back there we go pyramid <laughs> it's actually pythagoras who gave them all the angles and stuff for it i just spoil conspiracy now ah <laughs> so just to round this up, widespread practices and mysteries came to a close the introduction of Christianity by later Roman emperors. Temples were sacked and desecrated, and decrees were enacted that banned the practice of pagan rituals. So did this ritual die out with the fall of ancient Greeks? Or was it reborn like the souls of the initiates believed, like Persephone in the myth? Did these rituals continue in secret for thousands of years, paving the way for an Illuminati to seize control from behind the shadows? I mean, we do know that the Illuminati loves his pyramids. But perhaps that's a bridge too far. Is the Illuminati a Greek word or is that a tenuous link? I actually have no idea. German origins, isn't it? I mean, illuminate, Zerka. That's not an issue till everyone knows something. Imagine the day when it drops, society will be forever changed. Yeah, when Zerka's dropping illuminate, it's not a montage, it's actually just all the secrets of the Illuminati. He's been working on it for years. He's built the Cyberman out of nothing to build a brand and he's finally dropping. In that case, get him on the podcast. We'll be finding the perfect platform. <laughs> and that way, there's no way Spotify could really, um, refuse us a 98 million deal. We'll take Dogecoin as well, Spotify. <laughs> <laughs>
and Bitcoin and whatever crypto coin currency is currently on the up. All of them. Uh, thanks, Elon. Yeah, we'll take a Tesla as well. I'll just throw in a couple of Teslas. Two, <laughs> two, three, three. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we get into the ratings, I'll just say that what we do know is that these mysteries caught the attention of many renowned Greek philosophers and scholars, perhaps inspiring some of their most profound observations. So, were these rituals really as life-changing as they seemed? Was it just the case of the Greeks doing what humans have and will continue to do for millennia, getting high by whatever means necessary? Over to you guys. I think this is certainly an interesting one. And the fact that, you know, the repercussions of it are that it could have formed a secret society that is still around today. Um, you know, it's quite big and these Greek minds were the ones behind it. And, you know, also they were traveling to Egypt and interacting with them and getting their drugs and dealing across the uh, Mediterranean Sea. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like, we don't actually know too much about Greeks, what they got up to. Um, even though we do know quite a bit, but obviously not enough. And, you know, the, these people lived 2,000 years ago. Like, they believe some weird things. Like, if we look at kind of their religion and their mythology, they, they'd certainly believe some weird things. So you wouldn't put it past them having this secret societies that they didn't want anyone to know about where they did these kinds of activities. And for that reason, I'm going to score it uh, a 9 out of 10. Um, in terms of believability... You know, I definitely do think it's possible, very possible, that these great thinkers and these great minds just thought, you know, we need a secret society where we can just interact with each other. And, you know, if if they had this drug that you talked about and it did give them a high, they probably thought, oh, you know what, this is actually, you know, connecting us with the spiritual world, the afterlife or whatever. So I, I wouldn't put it past them having this. I think it's a little bit speculative because obviously we don't really know fully fact that the romans referenced it as well and the fact that people just like drugs and like to do things that make them feel good are still referenced by modern day i, I wouldn't be surprised whoever was the first person in greece to just go around liquor plants and finding out if you were high and then somehow taking it to like socrates and being like yeah lick this leaf it's like and then socrates licks it and he's like yeah i got to have a secret society now but it's <laughs> too good to let everyone else know he's meant to be intelligent <laughs> no, but imagine being the, the first guy who brings back to your tribe that you go this leaf makes you feel good <laughs> you'd be heckled yeah, everyone else every, like twenty thousand people have died licking other leaves and you found the right one <laughs> I don't think it's too unbelievable, so I'm going to go for a 5 out of 10. Okay, cool. So I'll jump in with my thoughts. Um, I really like this conspiracy theory. It's sort of multifaceted as all good conspiracy theories should be. I mean, it's got to rank quite highly because if, you, if you're saying that there was some sort of ritual that all these hugely famous uh, intellectuals took part in um, and whether there was some sort of link there some sort of almost divine intervention when it came to the intelligence and knowledge that they were sharing uh, and that formed the basis for the Illuminati then you're, you're almost going straight back to square one with conspiracy theories as a whole so I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 for that reason I think believability wise I think it's certainly is given some weight by the fact that it's referenced by more than one of these sort of philosophers. I also think it certainly isn't beyond the realm possibility that, that some sort of drugs are involved. You look at some of the greats, even in really modern times, like the Beatles, we we'll, we'll sort of come clean on the fact that they were inspired a lot by LSD and things like that. So I think it would make sense. I think, I think they, they dropped acid or something things. in the toilets of Buckingham Palace. I'm not sure if that's... Or the Beatles. Um, a... There was a story, a story, an article that I read. They got they got high 
in the toilets of a very famous building in Britain. I think I'm not sure which one it was going to be booking. It could be a House of Parliament, so I don't know, but more likely a palace, actually. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. And I mean, they've said themselves that Sergeant Pepper album was composed almost entirely under the influence of acid. And look how great an album that is. And look how sort of futuristic and how it stood the test of time. Uh, yeah. As much as you could say these poems have and, and these pieces of work. So I think I'm more inclined probably to believe that side of it that they perhaps were unaware what it was they were taking, but it was having very similar effects to modern day LSD. I, I just can't stop writing great um, philosophical musics. Give me more of this putting <laughs> out of tablet. <laughs> <laughs> Chip another bit off that mountain, will you, mate? <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm reasonably convinced by this. I certainly that side of it. So I'll go. I'm gonna match my previous score and go for six and a half out of ten. Right, I will round this up then. Thanks for your ratings. Really enjoyed researching this one as well. I will try to keep it on topic because this, this throughout this podcast we've been very good at getting off topic. And actually, by stating that, <laughs> I have just gone off topic again. So I apologise. It's really opened up our creative pathways for this episode and reignited some lost childhood memories in my case. So I tried to repress, arguably. <laughs> so yes, just basically broken my rule entirely by going on another tangent. But oh well, here we are. The joke's been made that I'm an expert on Greek mythology and Roman gods and stuff based on one pub quiz round the fact that I read a picture book of the Iliad <laughs> so it was interesting to find another myth that I was not familiar with and one that seems to have heavily inspired so many philosophical greats how much this had a bearing on their work we might never know but if they're confident enough to proclaim that this very secretive society has altered their perspective on life and inspired their works pretty compelling and enough for me to give it I'll give it a solid 8.5 out of 10 as well again believability wise gets a bit more interesting and it kind of arguably as much as drugs are fun and stuff it's a little bit of the boring answer always oh, got high or they got baked and saw some pretty colours and fires and stuff that they interpreted to be eternal rebirth and their soul being transported to another life and inspired these great works when it would have been cooler if it was actual supernatural forces but of course very very difficult to prove that especially when it's thousands of years ago and the mysteries themselves or the rituals were very secretive and you couldn't give them away for pain of death until we invent time travel. We won't be able to find out exactly what went on in those secret theatres. Whenever there's a collection of great minds, you want to create a society and keep all your ideas together so you can look down on all the plebs who aren't as clever as you. Yeah, it turns out all meant to do is get together and smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that wouldn't surprise me. I really wouldn't surprise <laughs> you. It's just like an old boys club or something. Every walk of life, there's groups of people coming together. Just some create fantastic works of philosophy and others start fights outside kebab shops, depending on, depending on your intellectual persuasion. But I digress once again. That DMT is really affected my ability to draw um, concise conclusions. <laughs> but, but my believability score and the fact that they were... Uh, what am I even rating the believability on? <laughs> <laughs> I've completely lost my train of thought. You have to bear with me. Believability that they, I don't know, smoked weed and got high together, <laughs> and now it's the Illuminati today or something. Yeah, it seems based on the evidence we've been given and human nature, societies have always looked for ways to feel good, to get high. And if a substance, especially in these primitive, I say primitive times, Asian Greeks highly advanced for the time. But when they didn't have constant media on demand 24-7, you've got to search for some more natural means to expand your mind and produce interesting theories. So if this drink was giving them visions of afterlives and 
eternal life and inspiring your great works so all your mates would gene you up about i think you'd be going right let's create a secret society we don't want this getting out we want to hold a monopoly over the philosophy world our teachings are the ones that should be god I'm losing my voice as well is that side effect of dmt <laughs> biggest more losing your mind yeah. christ what is wrong with me speaking for too long that's definitely science to wrap it up <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so just to give a oh my god why am I doing wrong <laughs> I mean you said to wrap it up like five prolonged it for like but I start a point I get halfway through it you're fascinated by Greeks so you don't want to stop talking about it <laughs> that's what it is but yeah so I think following similarize what you were saying it's quite likely that these guys have got together realised especially drink is giving them visions and well, oh, I know this is a tangent again but you know the, didn't the Native Americans famously have the whole like epiphany kind of thing I mean I think I've seen this in the Simpsons as well for God's sake <laughs> didn't <laughs> The Native Americans made a drink that, you know, it basically just connected you to the spiritual world. And I imagine it's a very similar thing to what we're suggesting the Greeks had. So, you know, it wasn't, it was around almost everywhere. Absolutely. That's definitely bolstering my believability. And also to go back to Simpsons movie again for the <laughs> third time, I just love the bit where Homer, he drinks it, his mouth's on fire, and he says, more please. <laughs> I guess that was a Greek's um, line of thought as well. I think, oh, blimey, my whole brain's on fire. Well, give me more. And for that reason, I'm going to give the believability a solid 7 out of 10. There we go. Got through that one. Uh, I think that's yeah, the most off-tangent theory I've ever had. about five complete... minutes talking about the theory. <laughs> so it's a complete mess of a podcast, but at the same time, really interesting list. Right, so after a very roundabout theory from me, I hope John will be a little bit more focused. Um, uh, yeah, not quite, if I'm honest. <laughs> so I'm sure you've all heard of the labyrinth, which was an elaborate maze structure designed to confuse and trap anyone that dared to enter it. Oh, just assumed you're on about the talented British rap artist. <laughs> I was thinking labyrinth. Come in. <laughs> so yeah, as kind of touched on, labyrinths have inspired many things, so like hedge mazes, Callum Z Pan's Labyrinth, as Luke said, the great Tiny Temper collaborator, uh, and even a film starring David Bowie. The basic concept of a great labyrinth uh, is still very much considered to be a myth, but it might actually have some truth to it. So sorry, what exactly is it? Is it just like a big maze? Yeah, it's yeah. like an enormous maze, yeah. Indoors? Underground. All oh, right, fair enough, yeah. The majority of the Labyrinth film took place outdoors, I seem to remember. Yeah, I think I've only seen a tiny bit of the Labyrinth film, but I don't think it's... It's almost like a whole world, isn't it? I don't think yeah, it's maybe one playing a bit fast and loose spot. with... <laughs> this is more like an escape room. Yeah, it's worth it to see David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. Some great outfits in that. Oh, yeah. So, as you, you may already be aware, the most one of the most famous uh, Greek myths centres on the story of the Minotaur. Uh, and that was a terrifying individual that was half bull and half human and was kept imprisoned within a labyrinth maze by his stepfather, King Minos, or Minos. Is that the Minos of the Minoans that we encountered in our Ancient Civilizations episode briefly? I don't know, quite possibly. Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. But the Minoans, yeah, the Minoans that Atlantis was based upon. It seems like Atlantis was based, um, like, to have a big circular maze-type shape to it, so you never know. I thought the whole um, Minotaur story was set in Crete. But... Uh, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's sort of touch on, yeah. But the Minotaur itself, allegedly, in the myth, dined on human flesh, supplied by the people in the city of Athens. And then every nine years, uh, they would send through 14 youths as tribute 
So they were sent into the labyrinth to, in, in essence, get eaten by the Minotaur. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a grisly coming-of-age trial. I know. I'd... Seven boys, seven girls. How does he get the side? Just same way as Hunger Games, just picking it out of a hat. Or... Yeah, fair play if you volunteer. <laughs> <for that. laughs> so it's like the, the FA Cup draw, everyone's getting excited and, and your name just comes out. <laughs> <laughs> get in, Minotaur, away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this ritual continued until the Athenian hero Theseus came to Crete, entered the labyrinth and killed the beast. So since the late 19th century, archaeologists, documentary makers and novelists have asserted that the um, Cretan labyrinth, the lair of that terrifying minotaur, was actually a real place. So the labyrinth is popularly held to have been in the palace of Knossos, and built around 1950 BC. I was going to say 1950. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Didn't realise that Minotaurs were around that recently. <laughs> and the ruins of it still stand near the city of Heracleon on the north coast. That's the ruins of the palace, not the labyrinth. So the labyrinth doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I'll kind of come on. Uh, to I was going to say, because if it does, I'm going straight on Sky Scanner and booking a flight to check it out. <laughs> yeah. Be sure when you're asked at the gate, what's the purpose for your visit? <laughs> We're going to see the Minotaur. <laughs> Essential travel. So the palace at the ancient city of Knossos uh, on Crete has often been argued as a location for the labyrinth and it may have inspired or even been a real life part of the myth. But excavations at the site haven't, well, one, one set of excavations at the site didn't really reveal any structure that matched the idea of a labyrinth. However, some recent research has also proposed that a stone quarry near the town of Gorton, which is around 20 miles from Knossos, was actually an alternative possible location for where the labyrinth was located. Uh, the bait sort of continues and a definitive location still remains to be identified. This disused stone quarry uh, on Crete, which is actually riddled with an elaborate network of underground tunnels, so it's rumoured this could actually be the original site of the ancient labyrinth. Surely wouldn't that be, like you say, the first one, they weren't sure what if it was actually the labyrinth. Would that be the perfect labyrinth, though? You don't actually realise you're in a maze. Yeah, that's very true, actually. Yeah, maybe they're just fully immersed in the maze without realising. Maybe that's why we haven't heard from them for a while. They're still in there. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea that this could have actually existed and each year they were genu- genuinely picking out 14 people to go into this labyrinth and get eaten by this minotaur. And in reality, they're just down there and rotten to death. That would be a horrible... I'd rather be eaten by a minotaur than actually be left to starve to death. Once you completed the maze once as well, it's probably a bit boring. You can't (laughs) keep doing it and you starve and get dehydrated to death. That's the thing. I don't don't understand. Yes, maybe it's a sacrifice, but if a of a long-winded way to go to appease the beast because surely if you use this as a sort of coming-of-age trial to achieve manhood, there'd be a start of the next that you've got to get through without encountering the minotaur. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. How how do you go into it? Because if you go in through a door... Would you not just turn around immediately and go back out the door? <laughs> there must have been so, a gate or something. Yeah. Or something like that. God, I can't believe they didn't think of that, John. Oh, they just, <laughs> they just down there starving to death and they could have just turned around and walked out the door. <laughs> They'd have to be like the centre. Fuck you, so I'm not going back. <laughs> yeah, so an Anglo-Greek team of scholars who undertook an expedition to the quarry this summer, well, presumably that was last summer, with all that's going on in the world, <laughs> believe that the site near the town of Gorton, uh, in the south of the island, has just as much claim to be the place of the labyrinth as the original Minoan Palace, which has touched on sort of 20 miles away. Um, but the Minoan Palace is sort of a tourist trap, so a lot of people go there with the belief 
that this is where the original Labyrinth and Minotaur once stood. So they're quite key to keep that reputation, keep the tourists. But in actual fact, it's, it's like another little village they think actually has what could potentially be the real Labyrinth. If you were to believe the myth completely and people are offering sacrifice to this beast, you'd keep it under the palace as sort of an evil villain lair sort of thing. Like, you know, you've got your shark tanks under the meeting table. Yeah, I think it would... It makes more sense, I suppose, that it would be at the palace. 20 miles is a long way to travel back. Unless everybody wants to use a long journey to build up the fear in their tributes. <laughs> they could both be true, I suppose. The labyrinth might just be that big. Yeah. Never know. So there's a Greek archaeologist and professor of Mediterranean history. So I think if there was anyone <laughs> qualified for this film, <laughs> called Anthony Kotsonos. And he noted how up until the 5th century, during the classical period... Parts of the large structure of the actual Minoan Palace were actually still very apparent to locals, and they reported being able to still see and visit the labyrinth some 500 years after it was allegedly built. So that's kind of, uh, okay, granted it's two and a half thousand years ago, but there are allegedly sort of documents and notes and paintings of this labyrinth and people having visited it. So it gives some weight to the fact that maybe it did exist. The Byzantine, never shout out, Angus. Uh, so the Byzantine historian Nikephoros Gregoras from the 1300s. What a name. I was swearing uh, yeah, no, yeah. into the 2004 Euros. <laughs> so, so he had a 37-volume collection known as his Roman Histories, which um, in part of them reflected on the visit of one of his former students, Agantagelos, who told him that the uh, ancient labyrinth of Crete is a vast man-made cave full of turns and dead ends. He says the bedrock of the cave doesn't seem to be particularly hard and could have been carved by anyone, not necessarily a mystical being. He goes on to describe the rock-carved pillars, houses, courtyards and fountains. So basically, um, in the 1300s, this guy claims that he visited the labyrinth in Crete and it was still sort of standing and you can still go and see it but he also said it wasn't beyond the realm's possibility like it doesn't look like it could have been built by god or anything it could have just been built almost for entertainment or punishment rather than as part of a mythical tale i suppose in these days we've got corn mazes i say had mazes filled with fearsome beasts and human sacrifices <laughs> but i think it's more the precursor and Sort of to like, you know, coliseums and stuff. Yeah. Rather than garden maze. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But I just find it interesting that... Because surely if you're going to be building a maze, to build it accurately and build the most effective maze, you have to see it from a bird's eye view. And if it's underground, that's some serious excavation work. Yeah, that's very true. I didn't really think of it in that way. But, well, that's assuming there was a plan. Let's just sort of make it up as they go along. Because I like, dig a bit here. Okay, these two connect. I've accidentally knocked through this bit. It's fine. It's dead end now. And just right now, we've got the small task of plonking this fearsome half bull, half man in there, yeah. making sure he doesn't escape through the door. <laughs> I still, I need to read up on that tale because that sounds far too easy to escape to me. Either that, or the bull is just was worked out right. They, they come from this door. I'm just gonna wait right at the door. They push them in. So there's no chance. I'm guessing back out again. <laughs> but I'm sure I remember, like when I first heard about the story of like Theseus. I'm sure he took string with him so he could find his way yeah, back. Yeah, he did. That's true. That's true. But he was only going out away from the sort of entrance to kill the Minotaur. But if you don't want to kill the Minotaur, there's no point venturing. Yeah. But if Theseus went out, he exited via the entrance. Surely <laughs> anyone <would Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to have guards or something at least. 
Yeah, but then you just walk out for two minutes, say, yeah, I killed the Minotaur and let me out. <laughs> Even if you hadn't. <laughs> just get the blood of one of your and... dead um, for, um, tributes on, just to make it look a bit well, more realistic. You say to the guards, don't believe me, go and check. Then they go out and get killed by it and would never grasp you. Genius. So. I just cracked <laughs> some myth of the Minotaur. <laughs> yeah, so th- there's some other sort of evidence that perhaps this great labyrinth did exist. And one of them is that there is sort of record sort of scripture that says that um, the great labyrinth was used as a hiding place for christians during various ottoman turkish massacres implying they were still standing you know more recently than obviously greek mythology times uh, more importantly still serving a purpose also in 1900 the british archaeologist sir arthur evans who was the first person who wasn't greek to excavate the area properly initially went into the excavation negating the idea that a labyrinth existed However, quite early on, he added that he was incorrect and on further examination, the existence of an ancient labyrinth must be so. It must have existed. I guess you could kind of argue that it's like a chicken and an egg kind of story, like what came first, the story or the labyrinth. The story could have existed and someone's like, oh yeah, this is a really cool story. I'm I'm really rich. I'm going to build a massive labyrinth now because I think it's really cool because it's in that myth. So although there could be almost definitely this potential to have a labyrinth, it's like, was it built 500 years after the... That's a good point. They never thought they thought yeah. think of it like that. <laughs> no. I, yeah, I do think that's a good point. Like you say, it could work either way. It could be this great labyrinth existed perhaps for torture or just entertainment purposes, and then it was passed down legends of why it was actually there and the Minotaur got added, or like you say, the other way around. So yeah, I think the evidence seems to point that perhaps there was certainly at some point some great labyrinth but as for the actual mythology part being true it's it's very difficult to know especially the king or the prince or whatever of minos minos built it for party games get have a few beverages get down there go play i don't know murder in the dark or something yeah. a tig. Got, his... got, a bit, got a bit out of hand chinese whispers next thing you know half man half bull is massacring human sacrifices turns out he's <laughs> just wearing his furry costume was <laughs> 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 <a> particularly hairy greek <laughs> <laughs> they are hairy the Greeks, actually. Swarthy, I think, is the term. <laughs> he like, I just got a bit out of hand with someone's pet cow. <laughs> Sir Arthur Evans basically said, on further examination, the labyrinth must have existed. And he said that this change of heart was based on architectural plans and rich bull iconography found all over Nosos. He found evidence of old walls and puzzles, as well as plenty of ancient documentation around the maze and the bull. Around this time, human sacrifice, particularly of slaves, was reasonably commonplace, and so perhaps slaves were sent down into the labyrinth as entertainment or punishment. One thing that was perhaps suggested is the labyrinth was real, and it was used sort of as a coliseum type thing, but the minotaur was just a normal bull, and uh, it was, you know, like you have the bull fight. I was yeah. just thinking, I was just thinking that, well, as you were saying, before you came onto that point, that was going to be the next thing I said. I say... think it's in Spain, you've got the matadors and stuff, but yeah, go on. You say yeah. that, but isn't a real bull scarier than a bull head with human legs? Like, a, a <laughs> yeah. real bull's like built to shit and rapid. A, hum, a human with a bull's head, it's probably just like runs at like a cancer. <laughs> yeah. I fancy my chances against it, to be honest, but not against the real bull yeah. that's angry. I agree, actually. They basically said that, that they think it could have also come from, in essence, a bull getting on its hind legs and jumping at somebody. Because there's a like a drawing of a bull kind of jumping. But when it's jumping, it looks as if it's on two legs. So it could have, there you go. again, yeah. come from that. 
but yeah, by the end of Arthur's excavation, by around 1905, the idea that Nossos had housed an actual labyrinth was so common that its truth was completely taken for granted. Further evidence was claimed in the mid-20th century, when tablets written in the language known as Linear B were found at the site. And tablets featured designs that clearly represented and documented vast mazes, including a great labyrinth. When you say tablets, you're not referring to iPads and Microsoft services, are you? <laughs> no, just Amazon. <laughs> but yeah, there's also similar labyrinth cave structures carved out of limestone near the ancient Roman city of Gortin, which also adds to some speculation that perhaps these were some sort of copycat labyrinths based on the original, and that labyrinths actually might have been somewhat commonplace, uh, whether it be as structures or for numerous functional purposes, I've sort of touched on. I think Colosseums yeah. also had sometimes had underground sections and tunnels stuff to spice up the fights. Yeah, well, there you go. I think it, if I was guessing, I don't want to influence your judgments too much, but I would probably say it was a similar sort of thing for entertainment and with slaves and stuff as a Colosseum. Yeah. yeah, I think the Romans did copy and quite idolised the Greek way of life. And, you know, they also destroyed a ton of documentation and stuff just so it seemed like, you know, they were the first people to do it. They they were big fans of destroying. Idolised them so much, they took over and established their own raid. Oh, yeah. Easy to do when Greece have done all the ground. Yeah, if you're part of a ground <laughs> So thanks for it's all Stephanie yeah, Stone. That, <laughs> so that brings the theory to a close, really. Bit of a shorter one. Um, but what do you think? Is the location and history of the labyrinth as difficult to solve as the maze itself? Or is it simply another myth and not really based on reality? What do you reckon? Uh, I think it's certainly interesting. You know, before you actually talked about this, I kind of thought there was known to be an ancient labyrinth in Crete of some kind. I didn't really know the details of it, but now we talked about it, just it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if, you know, they had this for entertainment, whether or not it, the myth was based on the labyrinth or, you know, the labyrinth came because of the myth and people thought the myth was cool. But, you know, surely if there's a story about a bull in a labyrinth, the labyrinth had to exist first. The concept of a labyrinth had to exist before someone wrote that story. So, you know, there, there must have been this big ancient labyrinth somewhere for someone to have written a myth about, I think. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, there wasn't a, a minotaur in there, but, you know, they could have easily put balls in oh, there. Oh, you know there wasn't a minotaur in there? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you get these zebras mixed with donkeys and stuff like that, tigers mixed with lions. Maybe the Greeks somehow found a way of mixing a bull on a human. I guess you can't rule it out, but, yeah, you know, these ancient civilizations, they love entertainment, stuff like this. I mean, the Romans, I think they had lions in the Colosseum, and, oh, yeah. you know, the Greeks might have not been able to get hold of a lion, so a natural replacement would have been a bull. And we know as well that the Spanish have kind of done that for centuries too. So, yeah, I, I really don't think this is too unbelievable at all that the Greeks had this labyrinth flight structure for entertainment with slaves in there or tributes and had a bull chase them and they had to try and escape or whatever. So, yeah, I'm going to score this a, a 7 out of 10, actually, as a theory and as... Uh, no, not as a theory, as um, believability. I'm, I'm not going to do you dirty and score you a 7, John. I don't think I've ever scored that low. Um, <laughs> as a theory, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I love I love stuff like this, mysteries like this, you know. I don't know much about Greek mythology, but this is a story I'm very familiar with. Didn't read it at 5, like Callum probably. <laughs> no. I do remember hearing this one as a kid and finding it very interesting and cool, and then you've got so many films and literature based off this idea of a labyrinth so yeah and um i'm gonna score it a 8.5 out of 10 yeah just on the mention of me reading greek mythology as a youth 
Those are my so we nipper. I do also remember having a book about Hercules and also probably somebody that recounted the tale of the Minotaur as well. So there you go. Parents tried to influence me. Young, I guess. And maybe it's worth wound up doing a podcast on the ancient Greeks. So there we go. And also, I want to follow on what Luke's saying. I would find it really interesting when there's that sort of overlap between fantasy and reality or myth and legend and actual real life. It's like it's almost a bit of a grey area in these sorts of stories, especially when we're dealing with times so long ago. I thought this was really fascinating theory. I'm going to score it highly. I really enjoyed this one. It started off a bit of a shaky grounds, but gradually built it up. It's like a guy with a maze going, sending us off here, left, right, centre. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I really enjoyed it. And I think I'm quite compelled into believing that there was definitely a labyrinth of sorts, especially if these previously sceptic historians ventured out to Crete and found enough evidence to cause them to change their mind. What's to say there wasn't a labyrinth there? And the fact that there's the town of Knossos, was it, was rich with bull-like mm-hmm. imagery and they seemed to be drawn to these creatures. Whether it was just a bull standing up on its hind legs, it got extrapolated as <laughs> But the Chinese whispers effects of stories or a real half bull, half human mythical beast. That maybe is a debate for, say, another time. It's very difficult to prove yet again, but certainly a fascinating thought. What's more likely, though, is they definitely would have had sort of sports with animals and humans when these drunk emperors looking for entertainment when they don't have Netflix, don't have PS4 or PS5, <laughs> got to basically just kill off some slaves. Uh, Make some bets, have a bit of wine, thumbs up, thumbs down. So yeah, I'm going to give this. I'm going to give this a solid eight out of ten on believability. I think it definitely was a labyrinth, and they enacted some gruesome games in there. Cool. Well, thanks for that, guys. Very high rating, so I appreciate that. And I think I'm going to echo what you both said. I think as an overall theory, just the idea that the because you always think of these ancient myths as well, a so long ago and be purely works of fiction. So when you when you start hearing, actually, there was kind of evidence there was a labyrinth. I find that really, really interesting. So theory, I'm going to go eight and a half out of ten. Believability-wise, again, I think certainly when there's now evidence of and documents, people saying they visited it uh, and, in, you know, the 1900s, people's finding evidence of it and that it, it, it kind of, the remnants of it is going to rank very highly in terms of believability. The Minotaur part, less so. Not completely beyond the realm's possibility, but I'd say unlikely. So I think I'll give them a sort of combined 7 out of 10 for believability. And I think to end the show, as usual, I'm now going to hand over to Callum, who's got a game of conspiracy for us. That is correct. Time for more rambling then. Really? I will say that the bar has been set quite high on previous episodes. It's my job to try and surpass that yet again and make it even harder for my next co-host. And for any new listeners... The game of conspiracy involves me, the host, finding three conspiracy theories or mysteries surrounding the topic at hand, same ancient Greece, two of which are genuine mysteries or conspiracies, and one that I, the host, have made up, and it's my co-host's job to weed out the conspiracy. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Number one, Alexander the Great was actually a god. Number two, Emperor Nero won over 1,000 medals at the Olympics. just you wait and number three diogenes was framed for plato's descent into madness so can you list off all a thousand medals uh, (laughs) we've got the one meter sprint the two (laughs) meters so anyone's want to do you want to give us a bit more yeah a bit more info on all anyone in particular let's go from the start from the start because i'll be honest i'm struggling i like the the sound of that so number one, which is Alexander the Great, very famous Greek king and warrior, was actually a god. 
He's Macedonian. Good point, actually. That's a, that's a bit of an oversight on my behalf. Well, he's, he's I mean, Macedonia, Macedonia is in Greece, isn't it? And he could certainly count ancient Greece as part of his empire. Yeah, I mean, which stretched far and wide. So the exact circumstances surrounding Alexander the Great's death are not fully known. Have been subject much debate. Causes ranging from alcoholic liver disease, fever, poisoning, and malaria have all been proposed. Yet none have gained sufficient evidence to be labelled as a definitive reason. What is known, however, according to historians and documents from the time, upon his death in Babylon in 323 BC. Historical accounts recall that Alexander the Great's body took six full days to show any signs of decomposition. To the ancient Greeks, this confirmed what they all thought about the young Macedonian king and what Alexander believed about himself, that he was not an ordinary man, but a god. I mean, that's the worst sort of soup ad ever. <laughs> when you die, you just take a bit longer. Wait, what? Six days? <laughs> yeah, that's, my that's body what I... Is my body meant to decompose after six days? It would just show uh, some... Like rigor mortis kicks oh, in. There's a South Park episode where apparently you shit yourself when he dies, so maybe that didn't happen, so he died with some dignity. He's just tired. He's just asleep for six days and they buried him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, number two, of the Emperor Nero being the greatest Olympian of all time. <laughs> so, being Emperor of Rome, basically overtook the Greeks but still participated in the Olympics. It comes with numerous benefits... And one such benefit was having the freedom to make and break rules as one pleases. With the Olympic Games, Emperor Nero could not be accused of half-arsing it. Not particularly gifted in strength or speed, he bestowed astronomical bribes on the judges, who then agreed to add musical events and poetry reading, activities that Nero considered to be his strong suits to the Olympic programme. I was going to say, I can just imagine like some guy's trained his whole life in a marathon and he's winning it and out of nowhere and the last thing he meets Nero, he comes sprinting along. <laughs> it's just like the scene from the dictator, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If we said it wouldn't be a gun, it would be a spear or something. We get one of his servants to do the dirty work for him. Finish line is just a track. <laughs> it's an interesting one because I know, I know the Olympics did have all these art and music stuff. Even the modern Olympics back in like the... Before World War Two, I think it had like town planning, urban design, oh, poetry. Oh. That was all part of the Olympics. <laughs> Is it the whole point? Of Kim art and, that um, craft, art and craft and stuff. It's <laughs> I'm not messing around. Look at some of the Olympic medals in like the 20th century, and you'll see like Grey Brun got an Olympic medal in town planning. It's like great. <laughs> In Milton Keynes or something. <laughs> <laughs> in that case, there's definitely some bribery at hand. I mean, yeah, they're, they're ones that you can definitely bribe. It's not quite like a 100-meter race, like town planning. If Nero's like, yeah, just, just give me a 10 out of 10 on that. <laughs> <laughs> right, so then number three, Diogenes and Plato. So if you heard of the story of Diogenes, you know who he is? It rings a bell, but I, I don't, I don't really so. know the story, to be honest. I'm sure you all know Plato to be a famous Greek philosopher. Yeah. So, students of Plato, who would later go on to document their master's life and legacy, didn't want to be known as students of a madman, so colluded to frame Diogenes as being responsible for Plato's acts of lunacy. So, Diogenes was an unruly member of Plato's school, who liked to challenge the scholar on many theories, and often mocked Plato by eating through his lectures. Remind <laughs> you, anyone? Yeah, I know. <laughs> My eating during class came from hunger, not through mockery. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so after Plato gained acclaim for his definition of a man, which was, as Plato put, a featherless bipede, Diogenes brought in a plucked chicken, proclaiming, Behold, I have brought you a man. And that's one of his most famous pranks on his <laughs> scholar. But as Plato got older, he'd lose control over his once fearsome mind. He'd walk around the streets, carrying a lamp, shining it at people, claiming to be looking for an honest man in a world of frauds. He also moved out of his temple and opted to live in a barrel in the streets and was known to defecate in public. 
Plato's remaining students, who were open in disdain for Diogenes' antics and dismayed at their master's apparent loss of sanity, began to spread the rumour that the lunatic in the streets was a former student of Plato's called Diogenes. Given that Plato and Diogenes looked similar, they bald and bearded, the rumour stuck and the origins of this infamous madman are still debated to this day. Can't tell if it's bait or not that you've written an essay on the last one. It's like, has he made that up or has he just... It just seems to have too much information to be made up. So fair play, you made that That's one. That's the problem with this game. Um, I, I don't mind starting. Um, I have heard before somewhere, I don't know if it's on QI or a show like that, um, the story about Alexander the Great's body not decomposing. I didn't know it was for six days. And I've never heard it linked to being a god, but I have heard it linked to him being in a coma. And they just buried him anyway. So Alexander the Great actually was in a coma and they thought he was dead and they buried him. So I wouldn't put it um, past the realms of possibility that that has been, you know, believed that because he didn't decompose, he, he was a god. That seems like quite a natural conclusion at the time. So for me, that one, I think, could definitely be possible. Callum could have found that, though, the buried alive thing and just yeah. kept all the details the last bit. And then the Olympic one, it's just... It just it's just funny. It's just so funny. A thousand Olympic medals just seem so far fetched. <laughs> like I don't know if in ancient Greek time they were every four years too. I mean he's done well to pick up a thousand medals. And just imagine <laughs> yeah. imagine him like going up on the podium singing the Greek national anthem a thousand times. <laughs> no, I, think, I don't I I won't say anything. I'll say oh. But you're about to say Michael Phelps got a thousand and one, is that how many did Michael Phelps win actually? I don't know, but it's around twenty probably one. What did he win, like, seven yeah. away in one of them? That's just getting greedy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it past it, but for some reason I just have this feeling that Callum loves Plato and Callum would have made up a theory about Plato. But it's so in-depth that I'm just not sure. I think he might be trying to trick us by making it so in-depth. So I'm going to go for the Plato one is the uh, conspiracy, the one that you've made up, Callum. Mm-hmm. What about you, John? Are you going to stick with Luke or are you going to try and make it interesting and go for a different one? Think you wanted a double loss for conspiracy, or the, maybe the risk. Well, I think I, I mean, find it quite interesting. Luke went with that one because actually, I I was weighing up either one or two for being the lie, and I just written that one off. So for the sake of being interesting, I'll stick to one of the first two. I hadn't heard that decomposing part of it before, so the fact Luke's heard it as much as you could have tweaked the end, I think it maybe adds a little bit more weight to it. So for that reason, I'm going to say that you made up the second one and that the 1,000 Olympic gold medals is a conspiracy. Well, we do have a winner. It is a win for conspiracy because I have fooled one of you, but one of you has also correctly identified the conspiracy. And in this episode, that is Luke. Yeah, so well I done. knew it. I knew, I knew it. <laughs> oh, God, there's so much detail yeah, in that. That's, that's the thing. That's a throw-off, that was. Yeah, that was my thinking yeah. when writing it. I was, I was playing fast and loose with the truth because certain elements of that are true, but the overarching narrative that Plato was a madman in his later years was completely made up by me. But Diogenes was a philosopher. He did exist. Yeah, I've heard of the name, for sure. Uh, just briefly on the first two. So, Luke, you are right in thinking that um, Alexander the Great was likely buried in the state of comatose. At the time of his proclaimed death, he might have been, um, say, evidence. Historians have postulated that he was suffering from a rare neurological condition that paralyzed him, left him conscious, that basically had really shallow breathing, and breathing was the thing they used to identify or try and identify if someone was alive or not, hence him being 
essentially buried alive and not decomposing for a few days because he was still alive. That's got to be one of the worst ways to go. Like, you're fully conscious, but you just can't tell them, no, please stop burying me. Literally kings one of the greatest men of all time. He died at 32 as well, which is really young in the day's age. I think all these accomplishments at just 32 makes you, makes you look at your own life and think, oh, well, we should be conquering a few countries right now. <laughs> and also, just on that one little fun fact, about that one such account of Alexander's death suggests that the great fell ill after drinking 12 pints of wine during a memorial feast. So definitely What's living up to his moniker of the great. Seriously, telling me that he's been buried alive whilst having a massive hangover. <laughs> yeah. that God, that, you hear the stories of the people who go on a night out and boarded a plane and wake up and end up a country. <laughs> he's like been buried by his mate. <laughs> he's woken up in another realm. <laughs> Unable to do anything about it. And so the second one, just a bit more, so that was, again, true. It was actually 1,808 medals Nero claimed to have won historians have found out and what such event the roman emperor entered a four-horse chariot race with a team of 10 horses although nero fell out of the chariot and was unable to finish the race <laughs> the judge still awarded him the top prize oh so yeah that shows especially a little bit of money might have changed hands prior to the race also maybe fear of being put to death as well because he was the emperor at the time just sort of let him win even though he's not even on his chariot just the horses riding through the finish line and scrabbling around on the sand do you reckon when he fell out, people were laughing? Too sc- I think too scared. <laughs> oh, well, I hope you were right. <laughs> oh, and then just a round of a little bit more background of Diogenes, because it's really interesting some of the stuff that he got up to in his time. And he was known for being a philosopher at the time of his view as um, pioneered the cynic um, uh, angle of philosophy, which is quite a pragmatic view on the world. And basically, he did openly challenge his mentor, Plato, who was a little bit more lofty in his view of the world, based a lot more of theological interpretations of the world rather than sort of hard and fast getting down to the nitty gritties. Diogenes liked he wants to live a completely ascetic life, which basically led him to living in a barrel in the streets, publicly urinating and what have you. And also one of the so-called taboo acts he would do was eating in the market, which is apparently Greek society didn't like to do. <laughs> he could also be considered, like some historians, the first prankster given some of his acts of going to feasts and urinating on the guests and stuff like that. It's not really a prank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah prank I know. Got ya. But a good episode of Prank Patrol. I'm not sure you show it on CBBC. <laughs> despite all of this, apparently, these acts of madness, he was fully complimentous throughout his life, as historians believe. He was doing it purely as an, we'll say as an act, almost like an act of rebellion against the stobbish society that the Greeks came to worship. And one final little anecdote about him, he once famously met with the aforementioned Alexander the Great and chose to ignore the most powerful king at the time. He was decided to just take a seat under a tree and rest while Alexander the Great was meeting dignitaries. Alexander was confused that someone would dare show him contempt. So approached Diogenes and asked him if there was anything that he wanted. Diogenes replied, yes, stand a little out of my son. <laughs> Diogenes definitely burns. <laughs> <laughs> Slip him asleep and tell everyone he's dead. I don't want to have a brain on that particular parade, but there's a, ru- I say a rumor. Historians have challenged the 
uh, assertion that Diogenes and Alexander were linked by fate and both died on the same day, given this infamous Ooh. meeting. Obviously, it's very oh. difficult to confirm based on the fact that Alexander might not have been dead when he was buried. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just back to the Alexander story, the Diogenes, the philosopher, was mocked by Alexander's subjects, but the king thought he gave some respect for the mad philosopher, um, respecting his boldness, proclaiming that if I were not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. And that seems a fitting way to wrap up this game of conspiracy and to close out the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this unconventional trip through ancient Greece with the co-conspirators. Perhaps you learned something, though we could hardly claim this was an entirely factual endeavour, despite some of those revelations that may have arisen about myself and my co-hosts. But nevertheless, we had a fun chat and will never fail to be amazed by the breadth and scope of our ancient ancestors. So, one final disclaimer, we do not condone the use of mind-altering substances and are not responsible for any of the hallucinations one may envision while under the influence. With that slightly serious note, I bid you farewell, and remember, keep challenging the status quo. Bye. Bye.